my name's Sam, uh, if you don't know me. Uh, I have actually requested that from here on in, we're going to have the passage read like that every week, uh, partly because I think it's great to hear the passage just read in its fullness, partly now because of revelation and partnership meetings and all these other things, I find myself beginning to lose my voice at the end of the day, uh, which is quite rare for me, but anyway, there it is. All right. I want to start by uh, advising you, or maybe not advising you, but telling you about something really tragic that you can do with your time if you choose to. Uh, And that would be, get onto Google uh, and put into Google how to connect with angels. You will find some very, very interesting reading. Uh, I just went through a few of the headlines that popped up, uh, and I think my personal favourite that I saw said... No matter what your spiritual beliefs are, no matter what they are, you can have a guardian angel to help you. I thought, well, that's good. It doesn't matter what you believe, but you can have a guardian angel. And the clever thing about that is this, that you can go to their shop and buy Oracle cards, and for $130 a session, they will help you connect to your guardian angel, right? Like, pretty amazing. Um... The reality is that there's just loads and loads of rubbish, absolute rubbish. Now, it seems, though, that people do have a fascination with angels. There's countless uh, web pages devoted to this. We read in the book of Revelation, for instance, John going to worship an angel who says, don't do that. Why? Why are people fascinated with angels? What is this interest? And why was even John himself about to offer worship to an angel? Well, I think in part, it is the biblical description of angels, which is very different from the chubby-winged baby version that we often see around. But the biblical picture is that these are powerful figures, radiant figures, certainly capable right throughout the Old Testament of miraculous feats that no human could ever hope to do. Coupled with that, I think, is our human tendency towards always trying to find the easy option. The thing about having a guardian angel is that they exist for my benefit and cost me nothing. Help me out, angel, while I live however I please. And that is the marketing strategy on these websites. You're just living your life, believing what you want to believe, doing what you want to do, worshipping God, not worshipping God, worshipping yourself, worshipping the devil, doesn't matter. You can have an angel that's going to help you on your own personal endeavour. Cost me nothing. All for my own benefit. Right? So I think this helps fuels this worship of angels, this attention and focus on angels that we see. And certainly this was an issue in the time of the writing of this letter. In the Jewish mindset, angels loomed large. God's powerful messengers who often, as I've said earlier, were involved in miraculous events. In a time of stress, in a time of anxiety, in a time where the Jewish people Uh, were worried about what was going to happen with the Roman Empire, where all of this might lead, 
it was understandable that people might begin to take their focus away from God and towards angels as some kind of additional help, support, focus to saving them from the trouble that they were in. And this is the theme of the passage that we are currently looking at. What we would have to say about our passage is it's really about Jesus' superiority to angels. That's really what it's about. Jesus' superiority to angels. The author is going to do this by looking at constant Old Testament verses and then applying them to Jesus. Now, there's an issue that we need to address right here at the start. The writer of Hebrews is going to use some of these Old Testament verses out of context. Yeah, we all know how I feel about context. And uh, the writer here is going to take a verse that was written about a king and he's going to say, yep, and then he's going to apply it to Jesus. So what I'm saying is tear Hebrews out of your Bible. No, not quite going there. Um, Here's the thing that we need to understand. The New Testament authors were writing under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, okay, in a way that no one else is today. The canon of Scripture is closed. You cannot add to the Bible, full stop, right? The canon of Scripture is closed. And so under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, these writers were able to take what was originally applicable to someone else, and under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, they were able to see a greater fulfillment in Jesus. They weren't taking it out of context, they were applying it to its full fulfillment, its true fulfillment, which was found in Christ. We are not at liberty to do this. We are not under the influence of the Spirit in the same way, okay? So we need to be really clear. Every now and then we're going to have a a prophet rise up, we're going to have someone stand up and want to add to the Scriptures. No, it is closed. So, saying that, let's start with the first part of our passage, Hebrews 1, 5 and 6. You'll get the context straight away now. For to which of the angels did he say, you are my son, today I've become your father, or again, I will be his father, he will be my son. Again, when he brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all of God's angels worship him. All right, again, we mentioned this last week. First thing to notice for all of us is he says, referring to God, speaking in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the word of God. That's under attack in the church nowadays. There are a lot of people who want to get rid of the Old Testament, essentially. Uh, No, it is the word of God. He says, God says, God speaks. It's his authority in the Old Testament that the author is quoting from. Old Testament, here to stay, people. All right. The first quote is from Psalm 2.7, and it's referring to David. And now the author takes that and applies it to Jesus. You are my son. The first quote, uh, as I said, uh, the second is from 2 Samuel 7.14, right? Today I've become your father, I will be his father and he my son. Now what I want to say is this, you are not meant to get caught up in the time frame here. Today I have become your father. Now it could be referring to the resurrection, like when was Jesus ever not the son of God? 
But that's not what the author has in mind. His point is very simple and very clear. This is the bit he's getting across, okay? Show me in the Bible where God refers to an angel as his son. Right? You going to find that? No, of course you're not. That's the point that the author is making. It's a simple but incredibly solid argument. Jesus is the Son of God, which puts him on an elevation above everything else. True? Everything else. He is God's Son, God's family, and this is unique. But the next quote, he takes it a step further in verse 6. Remember, the firstborn male inherits everything. Plus, all the angels are told to worship him. Okay, as we read in verse 6, all the angels are commanded to worship Jesus. Jesus as God is the goal of worship, not angels, and in fact, not anything else. As I said, the reason I think many would rather worship an angel is because they demand nothing of you. To worship Jesus, however, means you have to accept him as Lord, right? This is the big problem out there with worshiping Jesus. To worship Jesus, you must come to him as your Lord and Savior. It means I must bend my knee to his will, right? That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to accept Jesus as Lord. And so to worship Christ means, by definition, I have to bend and yield my will to His. It's just so much easier to worship an angel, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It doesn't result in salvation, though. Right? This is the crux that the author is bringing us to. Then we get to verse 7. Now, as I said, we've, uh, you know, we read through the passage earlier, so I'm not going through these in details. Uh, in verse 7... He makes his angels a fiery wind. Now, what's important about that is this. God makes the angels. They're created beings. They are made by God. Jesus, though, he is God. He's not made. Jesus, according to the first four verses of chapter 1, is the maker of all things. Is that superior? Those who made all things versus those who are made. That's the author's point. Jesus is the maker. In verses 8 to 9, we again have a huge statement of the superiority of Jesus. And it is a quote from Psalm 45, 6 to 7. Psalm 45, 6 to 7 says this. Your throne, God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with oil of joy more than your companions. All right, the context of the psalm that we are quoting from here was the marriage feast of a king of Israel. But obviously, it has a lot more meaning than that. It says, your throne, God, is forever and ever. Now, that's certainly not referring to the king of Israel. Your throne is forever and ever. Now, it could mean that God reigns on his throne forever, 
but probably in the original context, it meant that God had established David's throne forever and ever. And obviously, Jesus is the fulfillment of the throne of David, and his reign is eternal. Now, the next line is crucial, and it's good for us to wrestle with, because it says the scepter was a symbol of his kingship, of rule and authority. The scepter is a symbol of his kingship, his power, his authority, and his dominion. So what is the rule of Jesus like? If he holds a scepter that defines his kingship, what does that scepter represent? And according to our passage, it's a kingdom of justice. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness is a depiction of the kingdom of Jesus. Now, we need to wrestle with that and take that incredibly seriously. I've seen so many modern depictions of Jesus which just make you cringe, don't they? You have Jesus, the kind of peace-loving, everything's love, but he demands nothing of you. You've got the whole Jesus is my homeboy t-shirts where Jesus is just like this cool, hip friend that I get to hang out with. Uh, There's all these modern depictions of Jesus and they all miss the mark entirely. Jesus' kingdom is marked by justice because he loves righteousness and hates lawlessness. Hates lawlessness. What is lawlessness? It does not mean not having laws. I would not call Australia this wonderful place that honours Christ. And yet we are very good at laws. We have laws upon laws upon laws upon laws. You know, we're known around the world as the nanny state, right? We can just create a law and make everybody do the right thing is Australia. Has that ever changed anybody's heart before God? No. Now, we can have all the laws we want. It won't make us righteous. Lawlessness is not a lack of laws. Lawlessness is a refusal to obey and honour God's law. Okay? Not the state law, nothing else. It's a refusal to live willingly under God's law. Our problem in Australia is not that we need more laws to control behaviour. Our problem in Australia is we are born of sin and in rebellion against God and government can't fix that. Okay, we are all born of sin, we are all born in lawlessness, in rebellion against God, and government can't fix that. Only Jesus is worthy, because Jesus fulfilled God's law. Jesus has perfect righteousness. And when we repent and believe and put our faith in Christ, that He died and paid the penalty of our sin, the Scripture says His righteousness is imputed to us. We are declared righteous on the basis of Christ's victory over sin and death. Then, and only then, after you put your faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus, you are filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit begins to conform you to the image of Christ. What does that look like? 
If you become a Christian, if you're a Christian here this morning and you are filled with the Holy Spirit, what is the reality of what that looks like? What does that mean in your life? It means you begin to love righteousness and you begin to hate lawlessness because you're being made into the image of Christ. You are now a citizen of his kingdom and his kingdom is marked by a love of righteousness and a hatred of lawlessness. As defined by what? As I said, loving the things of God and what he asks of you and despising the things that are not of God. Hating sin. Hating the world that's rejected the rule of Christ. But that is how we begin to be defined. Again, let me break it down further. So what does that mean day by day? Does not mean that we go into the world to rage against people who are still slaves of lawlessness. It's not what it means. I don't expect you to turn up at work tomorrow, you know. God hates you all. That's not what it means. But it does mean that the ungodliness of this world upsets you. The ungodliness of this world gets under your skin. You hate the rejection of God. You hate the the love of self and the way the world is being destroyed. But what does that do in your heart, church? And this is a big challenge this morning. Well, we've got a great example of this. In Acts 17, Paul, when he goes to Mars Hill, the Areopagus, and and as Paul walks around, he just sees idol after idol after idol after idol, and his heart is stirred. Paul's looking at the worship of idols who aren't God, and his heart is stirred. He hates the sin, he hates the lawlessness, he hates what's going on. And what does that produce in Paul? What does that do inside of Paul? And if you keep reading the chapter, Paul goes and confronts them and says, listen, what you are worshipping is wrong. Turn from it and put your faith in Jesus. Amen? This is what it does within you. This is what it should do within you. You walk around, you're at work, you're in the community, whatever it is, and the lawlessness, the rejection of God, you hate it. It's awful because you're growing in righteousness more like Jesus day by day, and it feels like it's a stain on the righteousness of Christ. And what does that do? It fuels you to tell people how they can be set free from that lawlessness. Jesus, Jesus, Right? That's the response. Right? It's not getting out there preaching hatred. It's out there preaching that Christ has died and paid the penalty of your sin and seeing people set free. Right? This is what happened to Paul and this is what happened, should happen with you and me. If we are becoming like Jesus, then we will love righteousness and hate lawlessness. Our passage says, Jesus being the righteous one is anointed with the oil of gladness. Above everything else, he is our victory. This is what we're seeing here in our passage. In verses 10 to 12, we have a quote from Psalm 102, which I want to read to you, and then I'm going to ask you a question, so you've got to pay attention, all right? Psalm 102, 23 to 28. 
if you have your Bible, but listen along. He has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. I say, my God, do not take me in the middle of my life. Your years continue through all generations. Long ago you established the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. All of them will wear out like clothing. You will change them like a garment and they will pass away. But you are the same and your years will never end. Your servants' children will dwell securely and their offspring will be established before you. All right, question. Who is the psalm addressed to? Right there at the start. Ooh. Tell you what. Everyone's getting a mark down on their grade. My God, do not take me in the middle of my life. Your years continue through all generations. Who's that? God. We have in the Psalms a Jewish person who is writing a psalm of worship to God and is telling us things about God. Does it mention at all in this psalm God's Son? No. Does it mention the Messiah? No. This is important because the writer of Hebrews is a Jew who is writing to Jewish listeners and he takes this psalm, which is clearly and directly and absolutely about God, and he says it's about Jesus. All those people who want to tell you that the Bible never says Jesus is God are lying, right? It is so clear-cut in this passage, which is only addressed to God the Father from the Old Testament in a psalm. The writer of Hebrews says this is actually about Jesus. He is God, right? Last week, we saw Jesus in creation sustaining all things by his powerful words. And now we see more truths come out of the same idea. Jesus created all things, the universe, the sun, the moon, the trees, the mountains, the oceans, every cell's molecule. Our passage says they will all perish. Everything's going to perish. Everything is going to perish. In the Roman world, in this period of time, they believed that the earth and the universe was indestructible. And here you have a Christian saying, no, you've got it wrong. It's all going to perish. But for the one who made it, who is unchanging, and whose years will never end. Right? Again, it's pointing at the superiority of Christ over angels, over his creation. Don't you love the picture of the universe being like a worn-out cloak? I love that imagery. God is looking at our sin-ruined, broken universe. And he's looking at it like it's a thread-worn cloak, no longer fit for its intended purpose. And our passage here in Hebrews says, and he will take the universe and he'll roll it up like a cloak and he'll toss it in the wheelie bin, right? Because that's who our God is. He's so much bigger and greater and he can take the whole thing and he can scrunch it up and toss it away. 
the superiority of Christ. Of course, we all know that it will be made new, a new heavens and a new earth, no longer ravished by sin, but alive, pure and vibrant, lit by God himself. Church, this was written to encourage the listeners then. It's written to encourage you and me now. Back then, it was because probably there was a revolution growing against Rome and everyone's future was uncertain. Whatever it was, it was difficult being a Christian. There was persecution, there was rejection, and there was a constant pullback to the things of the world. And the writer says, remember that kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but only Christ endures forever. That's his hope. The great battle that I've talked about in AD 70 when the Jews tried to overthrow Rome and they lost and it was vicious and brutal and the Jews were expelled from Israel for uh, nearly 2,000 years and the temple was destroyed by the Roman Empire. Tell me, where's the Roman Empire? Gone. Right? The Jews lost to the greatest empire in the world had ever known at that point. Where's that empire? Gone. Who's still the same yesterday, today, and forever? Jesus. Right? This is what the writer's saying. Don't put your hope in, in national lines or government or boundaries. Only Christ is forever. Families also come to an end. A family line or name that we might feel strained to protect comes to an end. Traditions come to an end. Maybe the family farm has been in a generation for, for six generations and then it has to be let go of. It comes to an end. Literally everything comes to an end. This is my encouragement, by the way. I hope, hope it's working for you. But the writer of Hebrews is saying this. Yes, all of those things come to an end, but Jesus does not. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if you put your faith in Jesus, despite everything else coming to an end, your relationship with him never will. Okay? You will be with him forever. So it's not about family, ultimately. It's not about government, ultimately. It's not about the world, ultimately. It's not about the universe, ultimately. It's about Jesus and your relationship with him. That is your encouragement in periods of turmoil. Christ is our rock and our refuge. Building on that brings us to our final couple of verses, Hebrews 1, 13 to 14, which says, Now to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are going to inherit salvation? So the author's intent, as I've said, is to show the superiority of Jesus. All angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve those who will inherit salvation, you and me. Angels do benefit us in some way as directed by God. That's the key point. He controls them, they serve him, and we read about this happening in Scripture. Some of you might know the famous passage of an angel appearing to Daniel and communicating with him. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that in Daniel chapter 10. It's a cool story, by the way, if you ever want to look it up. 
Daniel's praying and after like, oh, I can't remember now, it's like 10 days or something, um, an angel turns up and he's like, oh, I went to come and see you as soon as you started to pray, God sent me, uh, but then the demon effectively over the uh, city stopped me and I got into this fight, cool story, uh, and then the Mar- archangel Michael turned up and he like must have beat the demon and now here I am to give you your message. Awesome story, Daniel chapter 10, have a read, right? The point of it is this though, here's what the angel says to Daniel, Daniel, you are a man treasured by God. Anyone ever want to have that said about them? Right? Maybe not if you're a woman, but still you get the point. Um, You are a man treasured by God. Understand the words that I am saying to you. Stand on your feet, for I have been sent to you. After he said this to me, I stood trembling. Context matters a lot. Daniel was praying to who? God. God is the focus of his worship. God is the focus of his attention. God is who he is seeking help from. And what does God do? God sends the angel. And this is the way it must work. Angels are simply God's servants doing his bidding. We don't pray to, we don't seek angels, we seek God and his kingdom first and God uses his servants, angels and us as God wills. Okay, that is how it must work. The final verse we're finishing on is verse 13 and it truly sets Christ apart as the author has intended. He quotes Psalm 110 but what he's stating is that Jesus reigns on his throne forever, and all people will sit under him. It says he also will destroy and rule over his enemies. Super important. There's no great cosmic battle going on in this universe between Jesus and Satan. We're not all sitting around to see who's going to win. Satan is a created being, and he's already defeated fully and finally on the cross. The end of all thing is a matter of God's timing, not Satan's power, right? It all sits with God. Jesus sustains and rules over all things and the time will come when that reign will be open and visible and all his enemies will be subjected under him as he rules perfectly over his kingdom. Closing comment, why would the author of Hebrews spend so much time elevating the superiority of Jesus over the angels? I think it's because under pressure and stress, and also because we are human and like easy options, as I said earlier, because we are human and we still battle with sin, we have a tendency to look to other saviours. It might be the hope of a guardian angel that offers me power or help, might be just anything that makes me feel more comfortable and secure. It might be a person, a preacher, who declares that they have revealed visions or dreams that offer you something special, something to feel liberated, something to feel important, something to feel like like you've got the secret code. 
It might be a book that has promised you some kind of victory or it might be someone declaring a spoken word over you that you have a double anointing. Whatever it might be, all of these things become substitute saviours. They are all saying, yes, I have Jesus, but ultimately, if I just have something more, then I'm going to be victorious in my Christian life. Right? We've just got this tendency to to drift towards substitute saviors, and they take on so many forms when, when the whole time the Scriptures are saying, Jesus is enough. Full stop. If you take your eyes off Christ and you place them on a person or a thing, then they become the focus of your heart. And they become your substitute saviour. But what you're going to find in the end is they were no saviour at all. Okay, And that's the reality of why the writer of Hebrews is stressing so much. In his context, he's saying when you're starting to look after angels you're letting go of the one thing that is the answer to every one of your hopes, Christ. And we can do the exact same thing. Look to Jesus. He is the author and perfecter of your faith. He is the creator and sustainer. He's the beginning and the end. Do you think it's an accident that the Scripture puts all of those things together? That He not only starts, but He finishes? No. He's the start of everything for you, and He is the sustainer of everything for you, and He is the finisher of everything for you. It is Christ, Christ, Christ. Look to nothing and no one else. That is what our writer is telling us. Jesus is superior to everything else. Church, let's fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith and look nowhere else for our salvation. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. We know there's a tendency in our hearts to wander. Lord, to look for that something extra that makes us feel more comfortable or makes us feel more secure or or makes us feel more special, whatever it might be. Lord, may we renounce those things and cling to Christ and Christ alone. Lord, by your Spirit, help us to just fix our eyes onto you. Lord, may we love you, honour you, serve you, focus on you, grow in you, and give you all the glory, for you alone are worthy. Lord, we pray this in your precious name. Amen.